Well, I don't know about your neighborhood, but in our neighborhood, the uh, Thanksgiving pumpkins have either been smashed or put away, and uh, they're being replaced with lights. So there's lights going up on all the houses, and we, re- we remember that uh, it's Christmas time. And I thought we'd take a break from First Timothy. Um, I'd spoil my record if I finished a book of the Bible all in one calendar year. I didn't want to do that. So I don't want to finish First Timothy in, in one year. So um, we're going to look from now until the week before, the, week, the Sunday before Christmas at uh, a series um, in, uh, about Christmas. And I'm going to look in Matthew, but don't turn there yet. Um, it's interesting what Matthew does in, in chapter 1 and 2. He, he, he tells little uh, vignettes, little, little uh, pieces of the story. And each piece, he has an Old Testament scripture in it. So it's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that's prophesied about Christ. And Matthew arranges his story around those, those pieces. And, and beginning uh, partway through chapter 1 of Matthew and then through partly through chapter 2. Uh, that's, that's our plan for this um, next three weeks. Is we're going to take a look at each of those vignettes, three of them. But we want to look at... at the part that he quoted from the Old Testament. It's so fascinating and instructive. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page 822, if you're using one of our, one of our Bibles there. Isaiah was a prophet, um, and uh, he lived uh, seven centuries before Christ was born. So what this story that we're reading here occurred about roughly 700 years prior to Christ, which makes uh, the story all the more amazing. We look at verse 1 in chapter 7. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king of Judah. And you want to remember at this point that the people of God, the Israelites, had by this time broken apart into two pieces. And there was Judah, um, and they were in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And there was, and then they called, and then Israel, the other ten tribes. There's Judah and Bethlehem in Judah, and the other ten tribes. There had been a civil war. There had been a breakup, and so now there are two pieces. But we know that the prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah were going to come through Judah's line, and then David within Judah. So that part we know. So. Um, uh, Ahaz is the king here in Judah and Jerusalem. And we pick up the story. It says, And Rezin, the king of Aram, that was north of them, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, got to love the names back then, king of Israel. So now Israel up here, Pekah is the king there, and he's got an alliance with another guy from Aram, the Aramaeans, Rezin. And they're joined up together. And it, and it says, They went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So they're fighting against Ahaz and Judah, the house of Judah. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart, meaning Ahaz's heart, and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, so now they're in trouble, the people of God are in trouble, they're being attacked, and God speaks to his prophet Isaiah. Go out to meet Ahaz, 
He's the king of Judah. You and your son, I won't try to pronounce it, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Tells him right where to go. Go there and say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabiel as the king in the midst of it. Now you notice here, part of the plot is they're going to attack Jerusalem, they're going to take over, and they're going to replace the king. They're going to replace King Ahaz with the son of Tabiel. This is significant because we already have the prophecies and it's already known that through the sons of David, the, the reign of God would, would continue. And now what's being plotted is Ahaz, even though he wasn't a good guy, he was a, a descendant of David and they're trying to replace a son of David out. As a matter of fact, if you go back to verse 2, there's many ways it could have been it could have said uh, how, who this report was given to. It could have just said to the people of Jerusalem. It could have just said to the, to, to, um, the tribe of Judah. It could have said it in many ways. But it, notice in verse 2 it says, When it was reported to the house of David, this is significant. So you have the house of David where the Messiah was supposed to come through that. And then, but in verse 6, they're going to set that aside and they're going to have a son of Tabil in there. Now, the prophet goes, just like he was told to, and he meets Ahaz. Now, you have to understand, Ahaz was a scoundrel. He wasn't a good guy. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ahaz, dream up whatever you can, because he's afraid. And these two enemies are coming at him, and it looks like... From a human standpoint, they're sunk, they're done in. And he's the king, he's shaking in his boots because he's the first guy that's going to lose his head in all this. And God is saying to him through the prophet, saying, "Take, it's going to be okay. And just to prove it to you, just pick anything you can think of. Be as outlandish as you can. Think of a sign as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. And then Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That was the wrong answer. Verse 13, then he said, Isaiah said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? It's not testing God if God asks you to do it. Say, as it's not cooperating with what God says. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you're not going to pick a sign, I'll do a sign, and it's something you could have never dreamed up. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. I bet you couldn't have thought that, Ahaz. So the, the line of the Messiah, the whole messianic, uh, the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecy is being jeopardized. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do something that's going to show you that, that my purposes are going to be completed. 
and you wouldn't pick a sign, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a sign. A virgin is going to bear a son and give his name, and his name will be Emmanuel, which we'll see in a moment. The meaning of that in the Hebrew is God with us. Now, if you flip through in chapter 8, that name Emmanuel is mentioned in verse 8. I just mentioned that in passing, but then I'm going to go to chapter 9. So this theme goes on, this theme in Isaiah about a child is going to come. And um, you look at verse 6. We've heard this before. So this is chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. In other words, he's God and it will be God with us. 700 years pass and now we get to the account in Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter one, beginning at verse 18. It's on page 1141. Matthew one, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. The, the uh, Hebrew betrothal in those days was much, much different than our engagement period. Um, it was really legally binding, although the two were not living together yet, there was a time that would go by and then they would uh, live together. So there, so there's no physical relation between them, but they're, they're bound together. So much so that in order for, that, for them not to follow through with the marriage, there actually had to be a divorce. So, so this is a something different than what you and I are used to in our, in our culture. So they're betrothed to each other, but they're not actually together yet. During that period, she finds herself pregnant. And we know from Luke chapter 2 that she knew what was going on. But Joseph didn't know what was going on. And in 19, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, Planned to send her away secretly. He was going to secretly deal with the marriage and separate, but not embarrass her in public. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Interesting. He's the son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the wonder in Joseph when he woke up from this dream? Because he must have been in turmoil inside. First of all, he loved this woman. Uh, now she's pregnant. She, she's telling him. He, she's telling him that I've known no man, but I'm pregnant. <laughs> and he's thinking, what? Now, what, what, what's going on? So then he has this dream and God says, she's right. It's of the Holy Spirit. Now, he's relieved on the one hand, but probably scared, shaken in his boots on the other. Whoa, what's going on? Verse 21. She will bear 
a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? I want to focus our attention on two names of Christ. Did you notice that in this whole story, he's he's we're told that he, they were told that to name him two different things on the one hand from Isaiah. And we see it in verse 23 here. He's named Emmanuel. But on the other hand, the, the angel in verse 21 says, now you're going to name him Jesus. And in verse 25, that's indeed what Joseph calls him. He, he names him Jesus, two different names. I want to focus our attention this morning on those two names, Emmanuel and Jesus And I want to point out four lessons that these names teach us. First of all, the name Emmanuel teaches us that Christ is God. See here in verse 23, it says, which translated means God. God with us. And then we saw from Isaiah that it meant God with us. And then in Isaiah 9, it talks about the same child. And he says, this one is the mighty God, the eternal father. This is God in the flesh. The scripture teaches us that Christ is God. John Flavel said, and I've quoted this before. He said, this is The astonishing mystery that God should be manifest. God should be manifest in the flesh that the eternal God should truly and properly be called the man Christ Jesus. It would have seemed a rude blasphemy had not the scriptures plainly revealed it to have thought or spoken of the eternal God as born in time. The world's creator as a creature, the ancient of days as an infant of days. And yet that's exactly what the scripture teaches. You can reject it. You can accept it. But don't try to change what the Bible says. It says that Jesus Christ is God. In John 1, 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 18, it says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him, meaning Christ has taken upon himself flesh, human body. But it's God who has already existed, becomes human. And he comes to show us God and to work to reconcile us to God. So don't accept any other idea about who Jesus Christ is. He is either God or this book is a lie. Now, second thing we see from this name Emmanuel is that Christ is human. Look again at verse 23. It says, which translated means God with us. 
But this time it's not God with us in the Shekinah glory that people shielded their eyes from or the lightning and thunder on Sinai that people ran from. This is God in human flesh and blood. And we see that he's human because look at verse 25 again. It says he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Mary gave birth to a little baby boy. He is human. He's absolutely human. And we say, well, didn't we just say that the scripture teaches that he's God? Yes. And now you're saying that the teacher, the scripture teaches that he's human? Yes. And therein is one of the great mysteries of, of um, the scripture, and yet we accept it as true. People down the ages have wrestled with this and have refused to just accept what the Bible says, and they tried to um, minimize one side or the other. Some people taught that Jesus was God, but he only appeared to be a human. He wasn't actually a human. He just walked around. He just kind of pretended to be a human. But that's not true. Others taught that he was a human that that somehow God specially chose and he kind of deified the human, kind of made him more special than everybody else. Others have taught that God switches modes, that our God is not actually a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit at the same time three persons but one being instead they teach that god uh for he can be the father or or if he needs to he switches and he becomes the son and then if he needs to he switches and he becomes the spirit so he's he's just one at a time but that's not what scripture's teaching many verses have father son and spirit all in one verse you can see them there some teach or taught that the son actually still teach some of the cults teach that the son was created by the father so that there was a time when it was just in eternity there was some point in which the father existed but not the son or spirit and then he caused the son so the son even though greatly greater than us is still a creation of the father that's that's not what is actually taught in the scripture. Others teach that um, Jesus had a human body, but he had a divine mind. So he's like part human and part God. Okay. Isn't this interesting? And then others taught that Jesus was actually two, two in one body. He was a human and, a, and divine all in one kind of body, but he's really two. And all of this, all of these different thoughts, by the way, had had come out in the first couple hundred years of the Christian history after the the ascension of Christ into heaven. And finally, in the early church, they called a council of people from all wherever the Christianity was. They brought them together, and, and they came up with a creed. It's called the Creed of. Chalcedon. It was made in 451, the year 450. And it's a long creed, and I won't read it all, but there's one line I want to read to you. And this is important. It may not seem important, but listen. They said that they recognized in Christ two natures, meaning God and man. And then they had, they said four things about it. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Without separation. 
Meaning, in Christ, he is God and he is man. And his godhood and his manhood are not confused, meaning they're not kind of mingled together in some way that they lose their identity. They're not changed without change. In other words, his godness, his divinity isn't changed. He doesn't become less God. His humanity isn't changed. He doesn't become more of a, more than a man. That He is God and man. Without division... He is, he is one person. He's not divided into two parts inside of him without separation. Again, an old theologian said this. He said, great is the interest of words in this doctrine. We walk upon the brink of danger. The least tread awry may engulf us in the bogs of error. It is a doctrine hard to understand and dangerous to mistake. I am really of his mind that said, it is better not touch bottom than not keep within the circle. In other words, he's saying, you draw the circle of what you, at least you know what the humanity and the deity of Christ doesn't mean. You draw that circle and say, I'll stay inside there. Even though I might not plumb the depths and really understand it all, at least I'm safe where I'm supposed to be. Amen? And this is important. I hope that your conception of Jesus is the right one. I hope that you accept him as God and as man. He is the God man. He's not less man than a man. He's not um, uh, less God than God. He is God and he is man. If If you have another conception of Jesus then you don't have the Jesus of this book. It's a Jesus of your own invention. And it's important that the Jesus that you trust is the real Jesus. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he said there in that passage, he used the, the, the actual phrase, I am. It actually could be tra- translated, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He was saying to them, you've got to accept me as God. I am the God of the Old Testament, but I am here in the flesh. And unless you accept me as that, you're accepting something other than me, Jesus is saying. And if, you, and if that's the case, you will die and your sins go with you into the judgment day. Believe in this Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man. Now, third lesson. Another lesson we see from this name Emmanuel is this, that Christ is on a mission to restore that which was lost. Verse, again, verse 23. <clears throat> it says, which translated means God with us. Think about that. <clears throat> God with us. God, who we've been separated from because of our sin, is coming back. He's going to be with us. There's no way you can think about this verse without hearkening back to Genesis and, and the way he, God set up the earth, this great planet. He puts Adam and Eve there, and he's with them. But then they rebel and they sin. They choose their way instead of God's. And re, you remember, we spoke about this just a few weeks ago. But at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says this, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, 
That's Adam and Eve went with him. To cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east end of the garden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. They were cast out and the presence of God that they enjoyed, they lost. So they, they, they don't have God. They're not with God in that special sense anymore. Sure, God is everywhere present but there's the special presence, the awareness of his presence, the fellowship with God in that presence that they've lost. And so they're now out on the earth. And all of human history follows that. We've lost the presence of God. And yet now this child is born and his name is Emmanuel, God with us. That which was lost in the Garden of Eden is now being restored. Christ is on a mission to restore that which was lost. And if we go from Genesis and we go up to the end of the story in Revelation 21, let me read to you the first four verses where we see everything coming to completion in this vision of the future that John saw. He recorded, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. You see that? His presence is now there again. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what was lost In Genesis, in the beginning with Adam and Eve, what was lost through their sin, the presence of God and our ability to live in sweet fellowship with God, we lost it there, but it's coming again in Revelation in the end. And in the middle, Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, and his name is God with us. Do you want this presence of God? Do you want fellowship restored with God? Then you go to Jesus. He's the one. He's the one. God with us. And I'd like to just make one note here for for those of us who know that we have been born again. We've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We've had our um, relationship restored with God, although the fullness of it will come in that day that Revelation described. We know it. I want to say that we can, um, we, we have a problem sometimes, and that is that we forget, we can forget that the very presence of God is what Christ came for us to have. And, and that's what we're to be enjoying, is that relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? With God. And we know that there are some things that we use to help us in our relationship with Christ, the, the, the old theologians call it the means of grace. You have the, you have the Bible and you read the Bible so that you can get to know Christ better. We have prayer. We, we pray so that we can 
fellowship with God. We come to church so that we can, we can know God. We serve. We even serve other people. But we as Christians have a, a, a temptation, and that is that we forget the goal of all these things, and we just remember that we're supposed to do them. And so we read our Bible because we remember we're supposed to read our Bible, but we, but we forget that we're trying to read the Bible so that we fellowship with Christ. And we pray, but we just pray because we're supposed to pray. And we pray, and we go on our day, but we haven't met with Christ. We come to church, but we don't meet with Christ. We serve other people, but we, we don't meet with Christ and grow with Christ as we serve other people. And the means to the end have become our focus, and we've forgotten the end. Anybody ever feel that? I have, over and over again. And then God reminds me, hey, Cliff, <laughs> remember what all this is about. And it's like, oh, that's right. Forgive me, Lord. And then I seek God afresh in the Bible and in prayer and when we get together and even in my serving of others. It's God with us. Christ came to restore that which was lost. And I can live in that restoration, knowing Christ. Friend, Christian friend, I would just say to, say to you, take stock of your life and make sure that you're not just um, using the means and forgetting the end. Meet with Christ. Well, the other, the other name that's used in this passage is the name Jesus. You see it in verse 21. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The root of that word Jesus means Savior, one who saves. And then at verse 25 it says, And he called his name Jesus. Jesus, that name reminds us of the, uh, brings up in front of our eyes the fourth lesson, but it reminds us that there's a problem. We need to be saved. There's, there's a deliverer, which means we need to be delivered. It reminds us that sin is the basic problem. You notice there in verse um, 21 again, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we have the picture in Genesis and Revelation that God's plan is to restore everything that was lost through our rebellion in the garden. All of it is going to be restored. So in the new heaven and the new earth, it's all restored and it's all going to be done the right way. We botched it bad over here. Now we're going to do it right. Okay. But... To start that restoration, you have to start with the root problem. And the root problem is sin. There are other problems in this world. We've got economic problems and social problems. We've got relationship ills. We have a lack of peace between people and even nations. We have health problems. We have all kinds of problems. But the root problem is sin. And if we... Only treat the symptoms will never quite cure, cure the ill. Only when the root cause is addressed will the other symptoms cease. And the root problem is sin. Is <clears throat> human beings who have chosen their way over God's and have then, by doing so, 
we've actually incurred upon ourselves a punishment from the just God, as well as we're going our own way and not receiving his help. And you'll notice, too, that this name Jesus implies that, yes, there's the root cause, and that is sin, but also it implies that we need help from outside ourselves. I mean, if, uh, if we didn't, he wouldn't be called Savior, Deliverer. He'd be called something else, Self-Help Instructor, maybe. You know, he's not called that. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. It means you can't do it yourself. You need to be delivered from this root problem, which is sin. You can't fix it. Some people make fun of people who of faith, people who believe in Christ. They say, ah, oh, that's a crutch. If I ever hear that, I say, crutch, nothing. It's a whole new leg. I'm not afraid to admit it. That's part of your problem is you think that you can do it. You don't need a crutch. You need a transplant. You need a whole new body. You know, you you can't fix yourself. And those who are humble enough to acknowledge that, they're the ones that see Christ and take him. Those who are proud and say, I don't need a crutch, never find Christ. And then the name Jesus shows us that, well, Christ did it. He is the Savior. He did come and, and take care of that root problem. He did come to deliver us. Later in Matthew, and we looked at this just the other day, on the cross now, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we, we spoke in detail about that, that there the Son of God, the Son of Man, suffered as a substitute for us. And that God the Father turned his face away and the punishment for our sins fell on on Jesus. And he cries out in that way. And later, we didn't read this first, but in a couple of verses later, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And in Matthew, we don't know what it was that he said with that loud voice. But in John, we do. In John 19.30, his last words before he died were, It is finished. Amen? It is finished that Jesus Christ suffering as a substitute for the sinner cries out on the cross. It is finished. He's done it. He has fixed the root problem. He has paid for our sin and taken it away. And today when we celebrate communion, as we hold those emblems in our hands, they're, they're, they're reminding us of the Christ who came The God-man who came. That's what Christmas is all about. And he came to begin to restore that which was lost. And he came and he dealt with the root problem, with our sin. Now, if we go to Christ, he he undoes the sin and then we we walk with him as he begins to restore everything else. Christ has dealt with human sin. Hallelujah for this Jesus. Amen. And hallelujah for what he, what he has done for us. As we move into communion, gentlemen, you can form up in the back to, to come down. As they do that, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for 
your great love. And as we'll see as we go through Matthew, later you highlight your great grace. And it's all grace, Lord. We, we're the ones that turned against you, chose our own way. And we don't deserve uh, mercy. But in Jesus Christ, you are merciful to us. You sent your son. He died for us. He takes our sin. And we are restored and now walk with you into the future. We thank you, Father, and we praise you. Now, as we take communion, Lord, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us not to miss Jesus in the midst of this this uh, ceremony. What a shame it would be, O oh Lord, if we think about the bread and the cup, but not about Jesus. If we take the bread and take the cup, but we don't take Jesus. Lord, commune with us, we pray at this time. Amen.